when we talk about issues of uh, a biblical community like we were talking about last week, you know, a lot of those issues may have been potential misunderstandings, maybe not necessarily things where there was just outright sin issues, but that's where we're going to go this week is what to do when you uh, know a believer who is caught in sin. And I have some kind of personal questions for you. Uh, and the first one is, have you guys ever known somebody that you really believed, you know, uh, was a follower of Christ and they fell into sin or they walked into it? Anyways. And a follow-up question to that is, uh, if that was the case, did you see, did you see it coming? Could you look back on things that happened earlier and really say, you know, honestly, I, I kind of saw that coming. And how many of you felt the sting of knowing that if you had stepped in earlier, and this is from a human viewpoint, I mean, we're not the Holy Spirit, but from a human standpoint, you felt the sting of knowing if you had stepped in earlier and given counsel, encouragement, exhortation, even if it took it rebuke, that things may have went differently. Uh, like I said, I totally realize that we're not the Holy Spirit. He's the one that changes hearts. But the fact remains that, that maybe there was something that I saw and I didn't say anything. I didn't do anything. I didn't encourage in any way. And um, I've, had to, I've had to deal with that. Have you ever been there? So I hope to glean from this passage, you know, a more accurate picture of, uh, of what to do in those situations. So before we... I have some questions that are going to help us flesh out this issue of Galatians 6, 1 through 5. But before we do, let's read this passage, Galatians 6, 1 through 5. I'm reading from the ESV, and it says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens. And so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he's something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each one will have to bear his own load. So the first question that I have for you today, as we just try to flesh out this passage, um, is who does the text say we should confront? Now, I want you to think about and answer in that. Think about the nature of the book of Galatians. What was it? Was it not basically an exhortation or even really, I mean, it was an all-out rebuke. I mean, if you want to see where Paul really kind of goes radical on people and really gets almost borderline harsh in some of his language, it's kind of in Galatians, right? You can probably think of some of those phrases that he threw out in Galatians that was like, wow, man. Uh, you, you said that pretty rough. But the book of Galatians is written to brothers, it says. Right at the outset of Galatians 6, it says, Brothers, if anyone's called in any transgression. He's writing to believers here. And he's exhorting these guys who were, um, you know, in danger of once again adhering to or turning back to Judaism. But nonetheless, they were still believers, they were still brothers. It's a letter of warning to not turn back, to repent, to rebuke the false teachers, to dispel them from the assembly. And I think the, the point that we can glean from this is um, that for, for the most part, we don't, we don't rebuke unbelievers. 
And I see a lot of this going on. I hear a lot about it. And I don't know if you're guilty of it. But you got believers at their jobs, believers in their families, or wherever they are that are all the time concerned about trying to make unbelievers live like believers. And I think that's really getting the cart before the horse. Uh, I don't know that it's healthy for us to try to impose some standard of righteous living on people who don't even know Christ. Um, lost people are going to act like they're lost. And I think we have to be careful here because I think it gets our, our focus off of uh, the things that we should really be doing. We, we don't want to encourage people to be Pharisees. We don't want to encourage people to be hypocrites. We don't want to encourage people to be what Jesus called whitewashed tombs. People that on the outside will be doing what you want, will be doing externally right things, but inside they're full of death. It's not really something that you want to promote. What do you want to do in that case? You want to, you want to lead that person toward conversion. You want to give them the gospel. So expect lost people to act like lost people. Paul here was encouraging. He was exhorting. He was rebuking believers. He was talking to brothers in Christ. Uh, And we should expect saved people to yield fruits of repentance. And for some reason, man, we really get this all twisted up. Because sometimes we'll rebuke lost people. We'll put our emphasis there. And then uh, we'll ignore the sin of professing believers. And, and I know this, this is a difficult thing, and, and I hear people say, well, so-and-so, they're doing this, and they say they're a believer, but I really don't know how to deal with it. Here's, here's the way I counsel people to deal with issues like that. If you don't know where someone is, and you won't because you don't know their hearts, just simply take people at their profession of faith. If they say they're a believer, then proceed in that way. And you know what? Community starts happening in that way because... Man, if what, from what happens there is, you know, tough times relationally because, you know, you're encouraging them to walk with Christ, to you're giving them some scripture to chew on, and they're bucking against that because they don't want to walk with Christ, then maybe what will flow out of that uh, is a realization that they never had the spirit of Christ in them in the first place to walk with Christ. So take people at their profession But let's stop rebuking lost people for being lost. Let's start sharing the gospel with them. And uh, let's start exhorting believers or brothers in a more passionate and loving way. We kind of get our focus off with some of that. So who does the text say we should confront? We confront believers. Uh, We also confront anybody who is a believer. Now, we've all seen abuses here because for some some reason, uh, it's easier to rebuke some people and not other people. I mean, that's just human nature. Um, but Paul is making the point here that it's possible for any of us to be caught or stuck in sin. He's leaving the door wide open for anybody in the church, from young people to old, from men to women, from uh, people who are discipling to people who are being discipled, to those people with a title, to those people without a title, whatever the case may be. You know, the point is nobody's above sinning. And we shouldn't lift anybody up too much because we all have a sin nature and we're all prone to sin. Uh, So we need to make a covenant with each other that we're going to watch over each other in a spirit of love and care. Uh, But also watch over, you know, the backs of your leaders, too. 
let's not ever let sin wreak havoc on us because we're watching over some and not others. So we've talked about who the text says we should confront, but now let's talk about what, we sh- what, what it is that we should confront. What does the text say we should confront? Notice that the text say, says there, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression. Again here, we're going to focus on that phrase, caught in any transgression. Caught in any trespass. Paul's leaving the door wide open here because what we typically do is make ourselves aware of certain sins and not others. That's just our nature. And sometimes we even make things sin that aren't even sin. You know, it's an in- and that's an interesting thought because some of the things that we might carry away from this message today uh, might be things that um, we think we need to rebuke but maybe in the category of false teaching them in themselves because, you know, Paul was rebuking legalism here and some of the things that may automatically come to mind for you, kind of your spiritual mile marker, may be things that fall into the category of legalism. So you have to be careful there. In other words, you may be promoting something as sin that Scripture's not calling that. And therefore, you're kind of lumping yourself in with the false teachers who are promoting law. So let me encourage you with this. Let me give you two principles here that will help. First, when investigating whether or not you should approach someone about sin, first go to the Scripture and make sure that whatever's bothering you about them is actually found in Scripture. You know, we are uh, really prone to make spiritual mile markers for people in certain areas. Uh, We want to impose our own standards of living on other people, whether it's because maybe there's a certain sin that you've struggled with personally in, in your past or your family did, you know, whether it be like substance abuse or something like that, maybe you had uh, a parent that, that struggled with that. And so, you know, that's, that's a really big sin to you, something you really watch out for. Or it may be something that maybe where you, how you grew up, you know, uh, with a, a background of, let's just call it religion, because that's what it was for most of us, uh, that, you know, maybe they promoted certain spiritual mile markers in your life, the the big sins and, th- and things like that. And, uh, but I don't think that's what's in view here. What's in view here is that these people that Paul's uh, talking about were promoting something in absolute blatant opposition to the gospel. I mean, it was totally anti-gospel, their message was. There was no question biblically whether or not these people were sinning. So make sure that you have actual specific scripture to back up your observations. Make sure that the scripture is clear and to the point and not just something you've pulled out of context to fit your argument. So that's the first principle. The second principle is this. When considering whether or not you should approach someone about sin, consider whether or not it's a pattern of behavior. What this message is not intended to do is to promote legalism in our church. I don't want that to come across. We don't need a bunch of people running around being the doctrine police, trying to rebuke every little thing they see. But what what we do want is we want to move people to a point where they're not ignoring uh, patterns of behavior that are contrary to the gospel. We need to care about each other enough to see each other free. And this is really the caught language here in verse 1, when it says, if anyone is caught in any transgression... It's not really saying caught as in, aha, I caught you in sin. It's not that sort of thing. It's the kind of caught language as in, as in stuck. 
caught in sin in that way. It's, it's kind of the same idea of Genesis 22 when um, the ram was caught by its horns in the thicket, in all the brush. And Abraham looses it and sacrifices it on the altar. It's the, the same idea of Paul being caught up to the third heaven, pulled away. It's the idea of the church being caught up at the parousia, or the second coming. So it's that kind of idea. And the word transgression or trespass also helps us to look at the nature of sin, what it means to be caught in sin. And regarding, Vines says this regarding the word transgression or trespass. In Galatians 6.1, this is what he says. In Galatians 6.1, the phrase, in any trespass, is a reference to the works of the flesh. And the thought is that of the believer being found off his guard and the trespass taking advantage of him. Guys, this should really open our eyes to the true picture of what sin is and what it does to us. The fact that it draws people that we love away. You know, we need to realize that no one's above it. And that when we see others struggling and being drawn away, man, we need to commit ourselves to standing in the gap for our brothers and sisters. It's all driven by a motive of love. You know, and, and sometimes, the, most of the time, the way that we respond to sin doesn't even make sense. Um, we're way too passive. And this is, this is what I really mean when I say that for most of us, it's not a knowledge issue. Whether or not we confront someone on sin or um, who does it or how it's done or any of that is not a knowledge issue. I think we know all this stuff. I think it's a belief issue. And here's how I come to that. Because I don't think anybody sitting in here, if, if the person sitting next to you were drowning and you were on solid ground and you had a way to save their life, so if you had a life-saving device, how many of you would not throw it out and draw them to safety? And yet, when we see somebody being drawn away into sin, which can do more than kill somebody physically, we say we don't want to get involved. Or worse, we pretend we don't see it so we don't have to be responsible. I think it's a belief issue. It's that we don't believe the Scriptures. And for this, I think we should repent and pray that God will give us a heart of belief. So we've talked about who we should confront and what we should confront. But now let's ask this question. Who, who does the text say should be the one responsible for confronting? Notice it says in verse 1, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Notice the text doesn't say it's the pastor's job. It says you. And if I had to guess, there are some of you guys who are looking at the words you who are spiritual, and you're probably looking at that as some sort of loophole for you, saying, well, I'm not spiritual necessarily, so how can I go to so-and-so and, you know, point something out to them when I know that I don't have it together personally? 
And I, I want to encourage you guys, be careful in saying that. And say it in a way that insinuates that you're willing to remain in that condition. Because in that case, you have to deal with the implications with that kind of thought process. And, and don't get mad at me, but just think through this with me. If, if you say that you can't help somebody on a continual basis because you're not a spiritual person, think about what you might be saying there. I mean, are you really saying that you're not a believer? And I don't want to go too far with that because I think you've got my point. And for a further explanation, uh, if you're struggling with that, with what I'm saying there, go to Romans 8 and just read that whole chapter in Romans 8. I think you'll see clearly what I mean. Now, also, to kind of prove the point here, let me point out regarding the fact that it's not just the guys with a title that are considered to be spiritual, that Peter calls every believer spiritual. Notice what he says in 1 Peter 2. I think it's verse 4, yeah. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So I take this verse to mean that there's absolutely no distinction between priest and laity. All those distinctions are gone. So I think it's safe to say that Paul never intended in writing this for that phrase to mean that there are only a few spiritual elites who can handle all the problems uh, that arise in the body of Christ. Plus, it's just not even practical. So when sin arises that you guys are aware of, you are responsible. The scripture saying that you are responsible uh, for seeking reconciliation between that person and Christ And that person uh, who their sin uh, has affected. And repentance will always follow the degree that the sin is made known. So if it's a a private deal, uh, repentance occurs privately. If it occurs with a few people, repentance occurs with a few people. And if it's very public, then repentance should occur in a very public way. So I hope that has proved the point that we're all responsible. But let's not like totally avoid what it means when it says you who are spiritual. Because I think we can glean from that. Um, We don't need to avoid the implications of that phrase for us. In the Thayer's lexicon, Thayer says that this phrase, you who are spiritual, is in reference to people who are filled with and governed by the Spirit of God. So when you go into a situation where you're encouraging somebody, when you're challenging them, man, you, you've got to do that being filled with and led by the Holy Spirit. It's going to be a purifying time for you. It's something where you immerse yourselves in prayer and study. It really leads you to a time of purifying for you personally. Along those lines, you kind of do the Sermon on the Mount thing where Jesus said that in going into something like that, you need to first look for the beam in your own eye before you look for the speck in your brother's eye. Do that. The point is, is that you examine your own walk first. And this isn't promoting that we have to be, you know, 
perfect to encourage anybody because if we did that, none of us would ever encourage anybody. But I do need to check my own heart and my own motives. You know, and, and the fact is, when you talk about that, that whole Sermon on the Mount thing, you know, sometimes other people's sin stands out to me clearly because I also see that in my own life. It's something that I clearly see in my own life, and that's why I can see that clearly in somebody else. So uh, the times leading up to providing encouragement for someone else should be purifying times for me as well. Uh, I wonder if that's occurring now in several ways, you know, here. Like if somebody's really struggling with what I said earlier about the whole thing of, you know, I'm, I'm, I've never planned on doing something like this because I don't walk with God uh, either by proxy, by proxy or intentionally at I don't walk with God, and therefore, this has really shown me where I am spiritually. I'm not even saved. I can't help anybody in that way. Or there are people here. There are people here, if you have done this before, if you've done the Galatians 6 thing before, um, you can probably give testimony if you, if you did it like the way it says to, that for you, it was probably the most purifying, one of the most purifying times in your life. It probably stands out to you as a time... That was probably one of the most rich spiritual times for you. I think that's the way that it plays out. So it's a really important step and should reveal to us the intense reality that we're absolutely no better than anybody else. And the person we're encouraging that, guys, if you look at it any other way than we're in this thing together, you've got it mixed up. You've got it wrong. Um, That the motive is only love. For them and a desire to see them free. Carlton Brown said that several times last week. Notice what verse 3 says to kind of go along with that. It says, Paul says, If anybody thinks he is something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. So we're not any better than the person we're encouraging. And notice what he says at the end of verse 1. He says, Watch yourself. Watch yourself. Lest you be tempted to. So I think we've made our point that this little phrase here, you who are spiritual, doesn't let us off the hook. It doesn't allow us to shirk responsibility. But when you see a brother or sister caught in sin, don't go tattle. And I'm going to expound on that in a minute. And if you know about it, then you're responsible for it. And don't bring others in on it unless two factors are evident, two things here. It's coming up on the screen. First... You can bring others in on the situation if the sin is of a leader and the sin is known by two, it's confirmed by two or three others. This is stated in 1 Timothy 5, and it's the case, this is the case, uh, if this is the case, then church leaders are to be confronted publicly. Second, uh, you can bring somebody in on it if you've confronted the person and they refuse to repent. In this case, you know, uh, you're taking along another party to try to win them over again. But I don't think it's what people have kind of made it out to be where it's like a thing where like you uh, you prep somebody and tell them why that other person is so terrible and why, you know, they need to come and, you know, whoop that person with you or something like that. It doesn't work like that. It's more of a thing of that person being a mediator, somebody that's hearing the case with fresh ears that can give uh, wise counsel and discern where sin is evident. So it needs to be somebody that's, you know, walking with God 
and is really going to be discerning, that can listen with, you know, discernment and tell you where sin might be evident. So this is the progress of Matthew 18. We're talking about Matthew 18 here. So here's the progression. First, we go by ourselves. Second, we go with a mediator. And then third, and then and only then do we bring it to the pastors or the elders. Okay? We get this all mixed up, and a lot of times what we want to do, because we don't want to take responsibility, and we don't want to be responsible, that's the first thing we do, right? We call the church, and we tell Pastor Carlton Weathers how he needs to go rebuke this other person. And that comes at the end. That doesn't come at the beginning. So we've talked about who we should be confronting, um, what we should confront, and who is responsible for confronting. So now let's ask this question. How does the text say we should confront? What does it say there in one? It says, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Now this leads us to the heart of the restoration process. You know, the way that we deal with confrontation and issues like this says a lot about where we are spiritually, personally. Sin has to be dealt with very gently. Um, there can't be self-righteous motives or attitudes at play when you're, when you're dealing with sin and exhorting someone else. But if your motives are right, this won't be an issue anyway. That won't even be a problem. And uh, let me give you two principles here that will help. I know you're surprised that I'm giving two principles. But first, make sure that your motive is driven completely by desire to see them reconciled to God and reconciled to other people. You know, the fact is, is if I love you and want to see you restored to Christ, doing this gently won't be a problem if my motives are right. If my motives are right, I can certainly overcome the desire uh, to stay in my comfort zone. Uh, if my motives are right, I can certainly work through my own sin issues and, and seek, you know, to be purified in order to be a fit vessel to encourage you. I can do that. Uh, if my motives are right, I can certainly endure some difficult times relationally with you. But most of all, I can certainly be moved to handle the whole thing in a spirit of gentleness. Second principle is this. Oh, and this is, this is gospel right here. If I clearly see God's holiness, then I will clearly see my own sin. If I clearly see my own sin, then I will clearly see my own need for God's free grace. If I clearly see God's free grace to me, then I'll be persuaded to give God's free grace to other people. All of these points press me to confront people in a spirit of gentleness. I mean, it's really a gospel issue. And you need to think on two extremes here. First of all, on one extreme. Uh... Is this free grace that we're talking about something that I earned on my own apart from him doing it and him imparting that to me with no strings attached? Is there anything that I did for that? Did I drum it up with my good works, my good merit, being a great guy? Absolutely not. The other extreme how big of a deal is sin? 
What price did Jesus Christ pay so that I could be forgiven? To what degree did Jesus become uncomfortable in order to bring me to Christ? And that gets us to the heart of verse 2 there where it says, Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. The fact here is, you are being most like Christ when you intercede on behalf of other people. So most of my encouragement today has been for those that uh, may deal with this, um, exhorting other people who are caught in the mire of sin and living in it and that sort of thing. But let me spend the last uh, few minutes just talking to you guys who may be personally struggling. You know, you may personally be caught uh, in sin. And I want to encourage you today. From verses 4 and 5. Let's look at that. Let each one test his own works. And then let his reason to boast. And then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. Now, let's look at this through Calvary. Guys, let's look at this through the overall gospel message. Is it saying test your own works in a way of pulling yourself up by your bootstraps and forcing yourself to walk with God? What is salvation and how does it occur? Is it a completely external thing? Maybe in the past, your salvation experience has hinged on external things, whether it be walking an aisle or praying a prayer or praying... Yeah, praying the sinner's prayer, which you never see Christ doing in the Gospels. What does he say? He says, repent. He says, believe. He says, go and sin no more. The fact is, salvation is an internal thing. Salvation occurs in the innermost part of man, and it works out. It changes from the inside out. Don't buy the lie. That you should never examine your salvation. Where you are spiritually and primarily whether or not you are sincerely His. It says it here to test yourself. It says it in Corinthians where Paul tells the Corinthians to examine themselves to see whether or not they are in the faith. And he says that some of you are afraid to do it because you're afraid what you'll find. So we test our own work. And then he says that, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. Guys, don't make the people around you the plumb line. I'm better than that guy over there. The scriptures are standard. And according to the scriptures, we hold the mirror up to ourselves. The mirror being the scripture. What does it say about us? It says that we've all blown it. That there's none good, no, not one. And if all you plan to present to God, like Cain, if all you plan to present is the fact that you're better than other people, then you're going to be grieved on the last day to hear him say, depart from me, I never knew you. Verse 4 says, test your own works. 
If your salvation is always hinged on something external that you did, but your life has never yielded the fruits of righteousness, then there's great value in examining yourself. Don't let your walk with Christ hinge on other people around you. That's Paul's point here. He says, because in the end, you won't enter heaven because your wife has a relationship with Christ or your husband has a relationship with Christ or kids. You won't enter heaven because your dad or mom have a relationship with Christ. Or folks, even because you're in a solid church. You know, sometimes we put our security in the fact that we're in a solid church. And man, that is great to be in a solid church. It really is. But the fact is, the point that Paul's making is, don't mooch off other people's walk with Christ. That's what he's saying here. Don't mooch off of other people's walk with Christ. Seek Christ personally. Fight for him. Cry out for salvation. And in this way, you'll be bearing your own load, as verse 5 says. Man, I hope that made sense. Um, um, The next few slides, I I really had a heart to uh, see us receive this properly. And so I I thought about a a few things that would help us maybe do that. It's kind of like, you know, that list, uh, you know, you're a redneck if, but it's, it's not that. It's different. You know you've properly received uh, this message if, number one, you've developed an utter hatred for sin today uh, and are now jealous for the freedom of those around you. You know, we saw with Achan's sin how his sin didn't just impact himself, it impacted uh, the whole camp. Number two, you know you've received this properly if, You're not looking forward to having to put this into practice, realizing that some of you guys may actually struggle with liking confrontation and strife due to your own pride and self-righteousness. But you are willing to put this into practice because you desire to love God and each other more than you love your own comfort. Number three, you know you've received this properly if you're willing to lose a friendship that you potentially never had to gain one that you will never, ever lose. Number four, you know you've received this properly if you are realizing now that you may have fostered friendships in the past that did not have eternity in view. You may have been more concerned with fulfilling selfish needs like having to be liked or feeling needed. You've put your stock more in those things than fostering eternity in each other. Make sure your friendships are built on solid foundations. Number five, you know you've received this properly. If you've already committed that when this sort of thing comes your way, you'll be willing to stand in the gap for your brother or sister, no matter how hard it is. And you commit yourself to not be a tattletale or a gossip. And finally, you know you've received this properly. If you've already, if you're already eager to repent for the lack of love that you've shown in the past to people that have already come to mind. Let's pray.